I'll give him 50% of it for good behavior. I'll still be happy. I hope he lives to 120, so he can really get the full effect of the 150 years. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson in New York City. And I'm Hannah Jaffewald, also in New York City this week. It Woo-hoo! is Monday, June 29th. You just heard Ron Weinstein. He is a Bernie Madoff investor standing outside of the Madoff sentencing today. He was at the top of the podcast. Thank you to Mike Pesca. He had lots and lots of angry people on tape. Big news today for the world of financial evildoers. And it is our indicator. Our indicator today is 221. 221 years. That is how old Bernie Madoff will be if he has some sort of extra special long life superpowers. He will be 221 years old when he is released from prison. Madoff's attorney said that that borders on the absurd. He said the point of punishment is not vengeance. But a lot of people will be very excited to hear that Madoff will spend the rest of his life behind bars. We found, Hannah, one group of people that is rather excited today. They're they're seeing this almost like a party day. Yes, not Ron Weinstein and the other victims standing outside the courthouse. Not a group of Jewish charities. Or foundations or foreign investors. No, we are talking about perhaps the happiest group today, Bostonians. <laughs> and that's trip. because of this one guy. Right, because the one guy who seems to have figured out quite clearly that Bernie Madoff was a crook is a Boston-based finance guy named Harry. Now, in New York, I was here called Harry Markopoulos, but Kurt Nickish from WBUR in Boston is joining us. Hey, Kurt. Hi. Hi. You guys don't say Markopoulos. Marco Polos. I I have that on authority from the man himself. Marco Polos. Okay, great. And now, I I think most of our listeners probably know the the basic story. Harry Marco Polos um, was a competitor to Bernie Madoff. His boss asked him to match Bernie Madoff's returns because Bernie Madoff was so good. Marco Polos did a lot of research and said, wait, this guy's clearly running a Ponzi scheme. And this was many years ago. Nobody listened. He told the SEC. Nobody listened. But, Kurt, I I saw you last week when I was visiting Boston for a WBUR event. Um, I did not realize just how much pride the city of Boston has in Harry Marco Polis and in Bertie Madoff going down. Yeah, some people around here, you know, Marco Polis, it's a Greek name, and some people around here call him a a modern Greek hero. Uh, He... um, he definitely was, you know, it. He was the guy who really pursued it. But there's no question that sort of the culture of the financial services industry up here in Boston um, influenced him and also sort of kind of created the environment of, of um, you know, colleagues and coworkers that, that Marco Polos could talk to and question things that, that, that really um, made you know, the man himself take it to task. I mean, Marco Polos was working in a, um, you know, this a, a small um, Boston um, investment company managing a hedge fund, basically. And it was only through um, other folks in that firm, um, first a co-worker, you know, a sales guy of all people, not even the, not even the boss of the place, who, who said, you know, why can't we do what this guy down in New York is doing? 
and he went down there, did some research, found out it just just didn't add up, and um, and it was kind of this this separation that the industry up here in Boston had that sort of enabled. Um, them to really do it. As this sales guy told me, his name is Frank Casey, he says they had a bit of salty pride just being from from Boston and doing things a little differently up here. Um, Boston's financial services industry is kind of famous for its Yankee, um, ironically here because it's the New York Yankees, but it's famous for its sort of New England conservatism, Yankee conservatism. And they just... um, they took pride in sort of doing things the right way and then also exposing something that was done the wrong way. Uh, this this sa- sales guy, Frank Casey, told me that it was kind of like, um, you know, that, that fairy tale, the emperor has new, no clothes. They had the separation. They were that child yelling, you know, the emperor has no clothes. Unfortunately, the moral didn't quite play out and, uh, and no one listened. It is great. I, I did a family genealogy. My dad was the first person in his family to leave Massachusetts since 1620. He has these Mayflower ancestors, and nobody had left until my dad moved to New York. And 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 most of my family on that side is is still in Massachusetts. And it is. It I I feel like it's a 400 year chip on a shoulder, and you know. Of skepticism and anger and and jealousy about New York to the south, and so it is now New York. I'd say in the financial services arena, we've been we've been kicking Boston's rear end pretty good these last four hundred years, or at right. least at least two or three hundred of those. And today must be a a, a great day in Boston. The, you guys got a you got one victory, and you guys put a lot on one victories, single. Yeah, victories. you can definitely say. I told you so a lot, or, you know, the, the folks up here can, as, as hollow as that maybe is today. But you talked about how, you know, New York has done so well and, and made, you know, and by that you mean made so much more money than, than Boston over the last 400 years. This is one of those cases where Boston, being a little more conservative, not jumping into things as quickly ended up saving it because when you hear about the investment banks that failed or had to get bought out, you're talking about New York, you know, day in and day out. There really have, haven't been any of those names uh, associated with Boston companies. Are, are you guys about to throw down? Is that, what, is that what's happening here? I, I don't know which side Adam's on. Yeah, I don't either. That's That's been a big theme of my childhood. I don't. My, I, I grew up in New York, but but rooted for the Red Sox because of my dad. So, um, so I guess I'll, I'll certainly be an honorary Bostonian for the day. For this, that's day. very convenient. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> All right, Kurt Nickish, thanks so much. My pleasure. So, Hannah, I feel like that was the last insight about Bernie Madoff. The fact that Bostonians are happy today, that was literally, that's it. I'm done. (laughs) You feel like maybe a couple other people are covering this story, might read about it somewhere else. I mean, every day we talk about what's the planet money take, what's a special insight we can bring, what's something we can do that that other media are not doing. And I feel like we did did the Bernie Madoff story proud, this Boston angle. It's kind of interesting, I think. (laughs) Maybe a little frivolous, but interesting. Um, but I feel like I can't I, – I truly cannot think of anything else to do. I feel like I want to move on. All right. Let's move on. Let's do it. And if any listeners think we shouldn't move on, that there is some amazing and untold angle, email us, planetmoney at npr.org. But we are going to move on. And Hannah, 
You are now going to take us on a quest. Yeah, and this was all started by Steve Drummond, NPR's national editor. He sent me an email, and I asked him to come in so that we could have a little conversation about it. Looking at myself and a lot of people I know who have 30-year mortgages and the idea of actually paying off that mortgage someday is a complete joke to us. I, I Personally, I will be 76 years old when I pay mine off. And, you know, it's not even a real possibility, or, or at least I don't think so. And, uh, you know, I've heard of people doing this. And, and uh, Hannah, I was just telling you about an episode of All in the Family in which Archie Bunker burns his mortgage. And that's, you know, I saw that, you know, when I was a kid. And I learned that when people paid off their mortgages, they had this big party and they invited everybody over and they set it on fire. And it was kind of a big deal. And I just think, you know, I, I can't think of the last time I heard of somebody doing this or, or I don't think I've ever actually known anyone who paid off a 30, 30-year mortgage. So so you were interested in having me find somebody who had done it, who had yeah. gotten to that romantic idea of being able to pay off your mortgage and burn your mortgage. Yeah, given the uh, um, given all the discussions about people defaulting and going under and, and of course, these huge uh, waves of refinancing booms, I thought it would really be fun to find somebody who had actually gotten down to the end and was looking at having their house, you know, free and clear. So we talked, and I started making calls right away, right afterwards. I called a mortgage broker in Seattle named Jeff Tisdale. So I'm a reporter with National Public Radio, and I'm in search of people who are towards the end of paying off a 30-year mortgage. (laughs) Good luck. Why do you say good luck? Oh, well, there's been multiple, multiple times over the last 15 years where interest rates have dipped down and people have refinanced. And typically what happens, for the most part, reset the clock. So there you go, Steve. So this is one guy who didn't know anyone? Yes, and I know what you're thinking. I called lots and lots of other people, mortgage brokers, banks, community lending people, the whole shebang. Do you have an idea of where I would try to, where I would start to track down someone like that? One time in the last 28 years, I have seen the mortgage was originated like 29 and a half years before our transaction, and I called escrow and said, this can't be. I have never seen this before. And she goes, yep, neither have I. Um, gosh, towards the end of a 30-year mortgage, you might be looking for an endangered species. There, there's one couple that I know of that may have done that, but I'm not sure that they paid it off. Yeah, actually, they won the lotto. No way, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Steve, that was Judy Holzer, Erica Malone, and Robin Finley, all veteran mortgage biz people laughing at me. So, well, it was pretty funny, but it sounds like a long way of saying you didn't get the story. <laughs> no. Steve, come on. I got you. Come in, come in. Hello. Matt's not here yet, but uh, nobody else is. Oh, great. Thank you. So, Hannah, where are we? This is uh, the home of Tamar and Chris Pearsall in Seattle. We never expected to be there for 28 years. You know, we were in our 20s. We didn't think we'd get older. Hey, so you found them. (laughs) I did. I told you I would. So Chris and Tamar, they paid off their 30-year mortgage just a couple years ago, and then they actually sold that house to their daughter and her family. They're a really sweet couple. We talked to her a long time. They're like... They're like one of those couples that have been together for so long, they don't even notice that their sentences are sort of made up of parts from one of them and parts from the other. 
we never looked at it as surviving the mortgage. It was just a day to day a payment that we made every month. Well, you know, I think there was a point, and I think it was probably in the early '90s when we started paying larger we, payments to pay it off. We could, we you know, could it's see. Not a, it's not a never-never kind of thing. So. We could see the, yeah, and that was exciting, the idea that we wouldn't have to make that payment every month. We suddenly were kind of uh, electrified by the notion that we could own this free and clear. So, Steve, here's the thing about this assignment, I think, why the Pearsalls are so hard to find. So, first of all, there are just fewer people like them. In the last 10 years, there's been a 7% decline in people who own their homes free and clear of debt. But that still leaves us with a lot of people, you know, way more than I would have expected. Something like 30% of homeowners don't have any mortgage debt. Um, But those people tend to be older, older than the Pearsalls. Not a young buck like you, Steve. You don't think about mortgages in the same way. You think you'll just move or refinance. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's not so bad, right? The interest rates go down. You can, you know, save money on your monthly payments. Right. It's not a bad thing at all. It just It just didn't used to be that way. You know, up until the 1980s, interest rates were rising gradually. The only reason to change your mortgage was to move to another house. But in the 80s, like you said, the interest rates started going down. There emerged this financial incentive to refinance. But, uh, but the Pearsalls didn't, yeah? No, they didn't. Tamar basically said, look, I'm not a finance expert, you know, what do I need a second house for? I don't want to get into any of this stuff. And then Chris kind of interrupts her and says, yeah, every time he started thinking about moving, he'd just look around and look at these houses for sale and the prices. You know, for us, when they started talking houses and, well, sub-increments of a million dollars, we're going, huh? Yeah. What do you mean we're talking a half a million or a quarter? You know, you know it's that's yeah, a lot of money. An ordinary house for half a million or 700000 I mean, yes, we know now that that's what prices have come to. But when they first started saying those numbers, it sounded outlandish. Well, how much did your house sell for? Yeah, how much did you buy it for, and how much would it have sold Which, for? It was thirty-five thousand. In nineteen seventy-one. Nineteen seventy-six. And I think did we sell it to Amber and Lewis for? I think it was four twenty. No, no, like no. That? It was three hundred and ten. Thirty-five thousand dollars. That uh, <laughs> that's really funny. Yeah. Well, so that's the other thing. You may have noticed homes cost a little bit more lately. So as the prices of homes went up, mortgages got longer, and just the whole proposition of paying off a house started to seem less and less, you know, like something actually possible. Um, and there's also just like a cultural shift that's happened here. The, Pierce, the Pearsalls, they don't like debt. And older people, people older than the Pearsalls, they really didn't want any debt. But more and more, we all just sort of accept debt. It's part of life. Yeah, tell me about it. So uh, so you got the story. The real question, uh, was there a burning thing involved? <laughs> Sorry, Steve. Well, I remember when we made the last payment, I was at work and I was on the phone with the mortgage company to find out what that final payment would be. And my coworkers were all going, oh, we've never known anyone who paid off their mortgage. <laughs> they were all standing around. <laughs> it was exciting. It was, a, it was a very good feeling. I'd always heard of people burning the mortgage, yeah. but there was nothing to burn. <laughs> I mean, you have some payment cards, and you've used the... Right. So, so you didn't have a party in the backyard where you burned the mortgage? No. <laughs> I think we went out to dinner. We went out to dinner. Yeah, Yeah, that's what we did. Well, Kana, all I've got to say is if I make it to 30 years old, I'm definitely having a fire in the backyard. (laughs) I think you'd have to. Well, thanks very much. You got the story. Thanks, Steve. 
Thanks, Hannah. And thanks for bringing on the big boss, Steve Drummond. That was excellent. Very welcome. It's also interesting how our perceptions change through time and through geography. I have lived in New York most of my life. It doesn't even occur to me that I might one day have a 30-year mortgage. And certainly, it definitely doesn't occur to me that I'll ever pay off a 30-year mortgage. Yeah, but there are some things that now are sort of assumed about home mortgages, you know, first of all, that it's a good investment to get a home, that, Adam, you are throwing your money into the garbage by renting a place when you could be investing it, and also that, you know, you get a mortgage and you have years and years to pay it off, but it didn't always used to be that way. So at some point, those two ideas were really radical ideas. I had this really interesting conversation with this guy, Professor Ken Jackson at Columbia, And he says, if you were a handsome young couple in the 1920s or 30s and you were looking to buy a house, no way you thought of it as an investment. I think people thought they wanted to have a house just for the same reason we want to own a car rather than lease it. It's my car and I'd rather cut down the bushes if I want to or not lease it. But it wasn't always thought to be such a good investment. Indeed, in the 1930s, just to take one example, the assumption was that a house was like an automobile or like a dress. It was a depreciating asset, and it would lose value over time, like a used car. It was a used house. Wait, so so you would buy a house, and you would think, the longer that I'm in this house, the more used it is, like a used car? Yes, indeed. Um, after World War II, a lot of Americans said they didn't want to live in a used house. That That's so hard to imagine now. Like, when I look for apartments where I live. I can't tell you how many ads I've seen for, for places with clawfoot bathtub. Old world charm. Like that's a big selling point. You would not, well, you would not have seen um, advertisements that would have made a lot of hay about that in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. People used to cover up the fireplaces because that was seen as old-fashioned. Nobody wanted a bathtub that was on, had its own little feet to it. You know, that was not modern. So so Jackson says a lot of people didn't buy houses. They were used homes, and also they didn't buy them because it was really hard. So here's how you would have had to do it. You would need to put 50% down on your home, and then in five years or so, the rest was due. At that point, you know, you might be able to refinance, but you might not. Wow, that's like some of these crazy exotic mortgages right now with these balloon payments. Right. So, so the, And those balloon payments were what there was. Um, that was a mortgage. And there was no such thing as getting 30 years to buy something. So only like a third of the population were homeowners. And then the Great Depression hits. People are losing their jobs. Banks are going under. And houses are worth a lot less. Yeah, that sounds familiar. So that when Franklin D. Roosevelt becomes president in March of 1933... In April 1933, they create the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which in the next year or two essentially refinances 10% of all the outstanding mortgages in the United States. The government was worried. We can't dump millions of houses on the market. First of all, that will depress the entire housing market. Uh, The banks will go under. It becomes an important public policy issue. The Homeowners Loan Corporation in the 1930s begins to move to create the long-term self-amortized mortgage, typically 25 years. You don't need a balloon payment. You just keep paying the same thing for 25 years. And after you've done that for 25 years, it's your house. That's revolutionary. That sense that you can have a long-term mortgage that will cost you no more than rent, sometimes less than rent, 
And at the end of the 25 years, it's all yours. It wasn't just the Homeowners Loan Corporation. It was the Federal Housing Administration and later the Veterans Administration. All of those essentially Washington programs make it easier for the individual or sometimes the returning serviceman to get into a house with his uh, spouse and their children. How how big was that? Like We think about that as pretty normal now, that the government would have some policy about homeownership and would be involved in that process. It's a major change, a major change. Before the Great Depression, if you wanted a place to live, that's your problem. It's not the problem of government. If you're homeless, it's not your problem. The change in the 1930s is enormous because now for two or three things, the federal government is saying it's good public policy for people to own their own homes. It's good public policy for us not to default on our mortgages. It's good public policy if construction workers have a job. It's good public policy to build houses, create jobs, put families in places where they can raise healthy families. And remember that we're talking a lot of times about the Cold War when we're worried about communism and its expansion. Well, the thought was a man who owns his own home is spending too much time cutting the grass and doing other stuff to worry about protesting at City Hall or somewhere else. Yes, capitalism can deliver the goods for working-class families. We can provide a level of housing that Soviet Russia cannot produce, that socialist France and Germany and England cannot produce, even though in order to do it, we were relying on more and more government uh, programs to help hold it all up. You know, Alex and I had a really fascinating talk with someone who works in the credit derivatives industry. And he said, if you want to understand the crisis we're in, you have to look at all this stuff that Jackson's talking about, decades and decades of the government pushing people to home to own homes for, as he said, all these really good reasons. But basically what that did was encourage a huge number of Americans to have the bulk of their wealth in an asset that was ar- whose price was artificially increased by the government and that sort of a bubble and burst might have been an inevitable byproduct of right, all of that. Right, and it's interesting sort of looking back how effective this was. I mean, the, the government programs, you can tell, it was one-third of people owned homes around the Great Depression, and then, you know, by the 1960s, it had doubled. Two-thirds of people owned homes. So the government programs really, really encouraged people who otherwise could not have ever owned a home to go ahead and do it. It is amazing what a different... Like, I grew up in a country where, even though I grew up in New York City, where it just was known that people owned homes, and to think that used to be such a a, a unique thing. Um, But it wasn't true for everyone, right? Right. So, of course, these policies also, you know, helped reinforce sort of racial segregation and discrimination. A lot of these programs didn't apply for African-Americans. So we, you know, of course, need to note that. But this first government intervention, it's really central into shaping the country and shaping the U.S. in relation to other countries. And I think that you could say that so many immigrants have come to America. Yeah, they want to see the Statue of Liberty. And yes, they believe in freedom and democracy. But what they're really coming here for is the American dream, which is the car and the house and the backyard. Because for all of the success of Japan and for all of the success of European countries and their economies, you cannot as easily buy a house as you can in the United States. If you come to the United States and you have a job and you reach age 40 or 45, you can buy a house. It's just just doable. That is not the same statement that you could make in Japan or Germany or many other countries. 
Do, do you think that's directly related to government programs? I think it's related to government programs. We don't want to say directly related because we, ha we live in a big land. I mean, that's why the Japanese can't do it. They live in a tiny country and they have a lot of people. So land is too valuable. We have excellent transportation. That means cars and roads now. We have cheap building methods. That means we've, we figured out a way to do it with wood. And we have government incentives in the form of tax deductions and long-term mortgages and its favorable treatment. And then, I hate to put this one in, we also had an, an incentive to move out. In America, unlike other countries, to move out moves you into a different school district and a different things, and so we can escape the people we do not like, whether they were Jews and Italians at the turn of the century or African Americans and Hispanics now. In most other cultures, that you, you don't affect your schools very much by moving, but in the United States you do. You affect your police, your fire, your schools, and your taxes and everything else by moving. So you add up all of those things, plus government incentives, and it's no surprise you've got the most suburban nation in the world. And we've been intervening all along in housing with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the Community Reinvestment Act. The Federal Reserve right now, right this minute, is buying, spending billions of dollars to lower the price of mortgages so that more people can buy them. Yes, this story, Adam, continues today. Yeah, although it's gotten a little more complicated the last couple of years. All right, so send us your mortgage pictures. Are you burning your mortgage? Are you Have you paid it off? I want to see it. We want to actually see someone who's done that. Um, share your thoughts on the Bernie Madoff sentencing at npr.org slash money. Send us those pictures at planetmoney at npr.org. Yeah, and Adam, wait, just before we go, I want to read something from that blog, npr.org slash money. So David Kessenbaum have figured out that the Madoff sentence is about one day in prison for every 1.2 million of fraud. Um, so we got this comment from Benjamin Running said, so at 1.2 million a day, I wonder if I could swindle 8.4 million in exchange for one week in prison. That seems like a pretty worthwhile trade-off. Yeah, I don't think it works that way, Hannah. Sorry, Benjamin Running. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. Well, I thought that I was